Hello and welcome to a special month for the Voice for Choice podcast as we'll be hosting two episodes this month on a specific issue that being green and climate policy as it pertains to China, the EU, and more specifically China and CEE countries. And so this is your host as always, Kevin Curran, reminding you to make the right choice and stick around for the podcast. I'm quite excited to bring on Janka Ertel, who is the director of the Asia Program, the European Council on Foreign Relations, and she's really authored some of the seminal works as of late on China and climate policy as it relates to the EU, uh, not least of which is a, a paper called Climate Superpowers, How the EU and China Can Compete and Cooperate for a Green Future. So I'm really excited to get down to some of the more granular issues that underlie the relations between not only the EU and China on climate issues, but also more specifically between CE nations uh, and China. So again, you're reminded to make the right choice and stick around. Yanka, again, just to reiterate, uh, I'm really excited to have you here and I'm really excited to get down to what I think will be a fruitful discussion. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. So, Yanka, I want to begin with uh, some of your recent work. You've authored a, a number of papers on the topic, but uh, also recently uh, through ECFR on the ideas of partnership being a, a mantra within the EU on climate change, but that not necessarily reflecting what the actual reality is. I was hoping that you could give our readers an introduction on what the actual reality is if it's not the partnership that many policymakers are espousing. Yeah, so um, I, uh, together with my colleagues from E3G, um, we wrote a report that's entitled Climate Superpowers. And we wrote that for a reason, um, because we were going through Europe, basically, um, and we were always hearing the same mantra, you know, China um, is both um, or all things a systemic rival, um, an economic competitor, and a negotiation partner. And this whole idea of partnership has become a little more problematic. We understand the systemic rivalry bit. We certainly see and feel the economic competition. But what is actually in that partnership box has been one of the questions that I've been going around Europe with and asking policymakers and diplomats. And the answer was very often um, climate change. And the question to me was, well, is that really the case? You know, is climate change the happy place of cooperation between Europe and the and and China? And I think that was kind of the the starting point for our analysis. And it turned out that obviously it's not that easy um, because you find all the elements, you find the rivalry element, you find the competition element, and you find some parts of the cooperation elements in that field as well. Um, so it's important to kind of dissect climate change as a topic and divvy it up in all of the different subtopics that are important, from sustainable finance to the question of decarbonization to the question of green technology. And then it turns out that the entire complexity of the relationship between Europe and China kind of plays out over all those fields. But if there is a rivalry or a partnership, let's say, uh, there needs to be two equal sides. Do you think that on this type uh, type of topic where China is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases and the EU sees it as a necessary economic trading partner, that these two parties are on equal footing in terms of negotiating? On the climate side, I think we have been kind of we've been defining this in, in slightly weird terms from the European side. We've put ourselves over the last few years in the position of demandeur, um, wanting China to change its behavior for a good reason, because if China doesn't kind of change its domestic actions, its carbon emissions, then we have a problem. Uh, this will, you know, we cannot fix the global climate by ourselves in Europe. Um, our input to that is just way too small, and China's size is just way too large in that. But the problem is that China will also feel um, the effects of climate change very harshly. It is very vulnerable to some of the gravest effects um, of, of, the, of the changing climate. So you will have that impact in China as well. 
that's the one reason why China itself has to be interested in mitigating um, and in, in emissions reductions. The other effect is obviously that there is now emerging a kind of economic logic to this. Um, the decarbonization agenda that we now have in Europe, that we have in the United States, will drive markets and will change the way kind of economies are structured. And this is something that is also important for the Chinese side. So the future of energy generation is in green technologies and renewable energy and the kind of dying sectors, the old sectors of the hydrocarbon industry is not going to be the way forward. So for China, this is an enormous economic opportunity as well. Um, so I think we have to get out of the role of the demandeur here and rather see sort of eye to eye with China um, on some of these issues, because technically, um, I mean, the, the the interest from the Chinese side uh, in tackling the issue of climate change is just as big. It needs to be just as big as from the European side. But you do mention that there's an economic logic to it and that uh, China, in your research, uh, has a number of trump cards that it's seeking to play in terms of cornering markets um, on crucial technologies for renewables. So hoping you could give our listeners uh, an idea of how exactly they're going about that and what are the key industries that they are trying to corner uh, as these sort of trump cards, as you call them. Yes, yeah, so very important is the, the question of new energy vehicles, obviously, but also the question of so the solar industry or the wind energy industry, basically any kind of large green tech that you can, you can look into um, is an area which China, through its enormous market size, can build enormous scale and build global champions um, that are then fierce competitors on international markets. So for us, I think here in Germany, I sit in Berlin on a normal basis, um, the solar industry example was very, very daunting, um, where basically uh, the competition with China and with kind of cheap and subsidized products from China has eradicated the German solar industry. And this is something that Europeans should at least keep in mind um, when talking about all the potential of green technologies is that China is very well capable of playing in these sectors and dominating these sectors and using its domestic market to actually build that scale that's necessary to actually dominate and compete in these markets very effectively. If that's then combined with uh, an active industrial policy from the Chinese state um, and a kind of a, a massive amount of, of availability of financing, then that will become a problem for Europeans. And the question is, can we afford that uh, when we are just currently trying to kind of reshape our entire economy and how it's structured around the premises of the Green Deal? Well, that's I'm glad that you brought up where you sit in Berlin, because certainly from Beijing's perspective, pleasing, uh, let's say, politicians or stakeholders in Berlin makes sense. And you can do so often on economic grounds. But Climate issues were also brought into the recent 17 plus one meeting for uh, Central and Eastern European nations, which aren't necessarily uh, the most fervent or vocal on these climate issues. I'm just curious why you think that Xi Jinping, who chaired the meeting for the very first time, was keen on bringing up climate issues to CE nations that wouldn't be as keen on them as, say, German leaders would be. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it was one of the four points that he raised with CE leaders. Um, and I think that was quite quite striking. This is not the kind of um, immediate audience for that, that one would have potentially picked. But it also makes sense in terms of a broader logic. Um, there's 11 EU members and 12 EU members in there. Um, and uh, we have uh, the kind of the, the question of um, these EU members have committed themselves to the Green Deal. So it speaks to a logic that is kind of broader than the 17 plus one. It speaks to the broader EU logic and it kind of portrays China also as a player in this field, um, as climate being on the top of the mind of the leader at all times. Um, 
this is something that just needs to be backed up now also in reality and not just in rhetoric. How does the European Union or uh, CE nations or whoever might be on the other side of the agreement actually hold China to account? So the question is, um, what do we want? Um, we want China to reduce emissions. China has committed to reduce emissions. Now that can be measured. Um, in the end, this is not something that is completely opaque, but this is something where you can kind of the input and output uh, can, can be measured uh, in terms of energy generation. This is also something where um, there is there kind of uh, is a way of holding China accountable along the way. So it would be bad for the Europeans just to say um, in 2030, we will we will look and we will see whether China um, has peaked its emissions or not. You know, we will look in 2030 and when it's in 2031, it's not going down. Well, well, then we'll hold them accountable. That would probably not be the best strategy. The better strategy would be to kind of along the way um, model and un understand and benchmark and say, well, you're not on track. You are on track. This is not looking well. This is looking better and make that a condition for other arrangements. That's why I personally was relatively disappointed um, with how the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment was not going into a lot of detail on the climate questions. This is obviously an opportunity missed where one could have inserted um, a lot stronger benchmarking and hold China accountable through these mechanisms that one has. Climate needs to become the centerpiece also of the European diplomatic agenda. Uh, because what happens in China over the next five years will be absolutely decisive. You know, the, the COP26 is very important, but what happens in China domestically in terms of its um, its, its uh, decarbonization agenda will be absolutely crucial for um, the world and uh, saving the climate in general. Well, well, luckily there's been a signal on that because the National People's Congress uh, just passed um, where there was talk about a green transformation of the economy and moving it uh, towards targets of decarbonization and uh, also promotion of green technologies as we've touched upon. Uh, I was curious what your reaction to some of the statements made and, and if the domestic front is actually going to push uh, China towards some of the goals that the EU would like to see more so than uh, the EU itself is. Yeah, so at the moment, we still don't have, I mean, the, the five-year plan is not out yet. We see some of the statements. We heard the speech from Li Keqiang. Um, we, this was not something that was super overly ambitious on the climate agenda. Um, there was no clear kind of roadmap and how to achieve the goals. The goals were reiterated. We're talking now about um, a reduction of carbon intensity by 18% and a reduction of energy intensity by 13.5% during the during the fifth, uh, 14th five-year plan. So um, that would still allow for a rise in total emissions. That's still not a kind of a roadmap towards the, the peaking in general. It still remains a bit vague and, and a bit ambivalent um, in terms of, kind of what the actual strategy will look like. And it is a difficult balancing act that the Chinese government now has to perform between the interests of local authorities of, on the province level, job creation at you know under, under conditions of the pandemic, where that obviously has also put a strain on the Chinese economy. So it's not an easy task to perform that kind of transition in the short term. It does seem like there will be more to come over the next few months um, in terms of how actually this will then be put into practice. Um, but it will be one topic that we need to closely watch. What exactly are the things um, that the Chinese government will decide on the province level, on the local level, and on the federal level, on the on the kind of uh, on the Beijing level to decide where um, where the next um, where the where the own benchmarks will be set. You do note some of the ambivalent aspects of what we've seen so far. Um, one of those in, in my reading of it is is the issue of coal. 
And that is also an issue that hopefully we can touch upon, bring it back towards the BRI where uh, coal power plants are, are, are being planned and uh, constructed as part of a number of infrastructure projects uh, financed by China or Chinese firms. I was curious what your thoughts are on coal and, and whether that is a, kind of a red flag, let's say, for um, lawmakers in the EU that have taken harsher stances against coal power technology. Yeah, rightly so. This is one of the big kind of contradictions in in China's current approach. So over the last uh, over the last year, um, China has added more coal power than anyone else in the world, three times as much uh, new coal power capacity. Um, China's building coal power plants in China, but also along the Belt and Road, also in Europe's vicinity or in Europe particularly. Um, so this is something that is of great concern. And is it European policymakers asking for uh, coal power plants, or is it kind of the attractive offer that is uh, attractive offer that is on the table? Is it about the financing that is on the table? Is it about the lack of alternatives? You know, this is these are all questions that Europeans need to focus on here. But I do think that for China, this will become the big litmus test. Will they be able to phase out coal quickly and also phase out investment in coal in third countries? It's not just we're not just talking Europe. We're talking basically worldwide around around the BRI. This will be one of the big tests where we can see um, in the relatively near future what China is willing to actually do, how far it is actually willing to um, let its actions speak and not just the words in this regard. Um, I do think we will see for a number of years now to come this kind of simultaneous development of, of still having that kind of massive coal footprint. But at the same time, it's also true that China added uh, more um, kind of renewable capacity um, than, than the Europeans did um, over the last year. So I think it's really something um, we need to we need to understand and accept um, that these developments are taking both place at the same time. China will be a champion on new energy vehicles. It will be a champion on renewable uh, technologies and renewable energies. Um, and it will be that while still building coal-fired power plant at the moment. Um, and so we have to figure out um, how we can, how we can increase the leverage um, on the on the European side um, for China to stop financing coal and stop investing in coal as quickly as possible. What are the diplomatic tools that we can use? What are the economic levers that we can use? Um, what is the way we can kind of try to shape that and influence that behavior? Lots to unpack there, but I do want to touch on something a, a little bit tangential, um, and that being that if China does actually put action behind the rhetoric in uh, third countries in terms of not moving towards coal and indeed uh, embarking upon addressing some of these renewable energy um, initiatives that it has in mind and has spoken about, like we mentioned at the 17 plus one meeting uh, in February, does that create an environment where there might also be economic competition? It's critical infrastructure in terms of these uh, power plants or other uh, systemic issues will create uh, sort of a geopolitical rivalry that we've seen already yeah, with I a couple of uh, power plants in Romania and the Czech Republic, for example. Have, just have to get ready for um, the fact that all the economies are simultaneously decarbonizing now, all the big economies, will create new kinds of competition and new areas of competition. So we're just now, we just brought out um, a report together with Bruegel at ECFR that a couple of my, my colleagues wrote 
on the geopolitics of the Green Deal. And I do think this is one of the areas in which we really, really need to look into um, what are the kind of the ramifications of our decisions that we've taken now? How do they affect other policy priorities in other areas? How do they destabilize regions? And how do they bring us into potential geopolitical conflict with players such as China um, in regions where we then have both have interests um, and where we both like to make investments um, and where there is attractive ways of having, you know, a solar power uh, plant and a, a hydrogen plant next to it and a green steel factory next to it. Um, how do you kind of, how do you create conditions under which European companies can still be competitive in that framework? I, I was curious about what you think the dynamics are going to be if we have to overlap green policy and environmental policy with these myriad of geopolitical issues um, that China brings along with it. Do you think it's possible as decouple, to borrow a term, climate issues from overall geopolitical rivalries uh, that exist both between the EU and China and the US and China? I think that's impossible. I, I think um, climate is, is at the heart of our politics now. Um, and because it is at the heart of our politics and our economics right now, um, it will not be nicely, you will not be able to nicely fence it off and protect it from kind of other influences that are there. Um, that's just an unrealistic assumption. And I don't think that the Biden administration is trying to do that. I think it's really important that um, we're not trying to play one against the other and basically um, pay or, or, or allow a, a certain kind of behavior for other behavior in the climate space and just play that against each other. That's um, that's a tactic that is very likely to fail. So I do think that Europeans need to make clear in all of their interactions that the climate dimension is always integral part of the framework within which we operate. And it is part of the framework of our kind of overall relationship with China. But there is still some be disagreement so between EU nations on climate policy. And certainly the CAI did little for restoring any sense of EU unity. Do you see this as a issue for uh, EU unity overall and cohesion um, on climate issues as it pertains to China uh, when there are differing investment strategies and uh, economic partnerships between, let's say, Germany uh, and uh, CE countries vis-a-vis -vis China? Maybe we need to I mean, unpack that and, and sort that a bit. So I think in general, the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, the CHI, as it, it, it had been termed, um, was something that has created by like by the way it was brought about, the general agreement about the CHI, um, has created frictions within the EU. And these were absolutely avoidable frictions. This is something that had did not have to take place like that. Um, there were negotiations going on for so many years. Um, the reason why it was pushed in like this 11th hour version by the German Council presidency um, have not been communicated and explained very well to EU colleagues. This has created kind of a sense of um, not very much caring about the other Europeans. Um, it has obviously a component of what does the future of the EU China 17 plus one format has always been kind of uh, represented in the EU, that they get enough FaceTime with the Chinese president, that they get enough attention in the overall EU process. So I do think that this is just kind of has reinforced a tendency that we thought we were about to overcome. And that was actually kind of understanding. No one believes that at the EU side, but I think it is something that needs to be made really clear how small of a um, of a kind of um, part. But of course, of agreement on economies like end, Czech Republic um, or Slovakia task, or Poland are hugely reliant upon uh, shifts and fluctuations in the German economy just by consequence of being uh, right next to it and also Germany being the largest uh, economy in the region. Uh, um, 
when Germany makes these types of deals with um, with China because of its reliance on different uh, export agreements, certainly within the automotive sector, um, doesn't that necessarily uh, mean that as Germany dictates policy on China, so too do uh, numerous firms and policymakers in Central European co uh, countries have to follow? I think one of the big questions that we have to ask ourselves um, in Europe, just much more frankly, is who actually benefits? So is it actually Germany benefiting from certain kinds of agreements and investments, or is it just the companies? So how much money is actually flowing back? How much investment is actually flowing back to the European economy? Or is there a situation where in the end, there are multinational companies that have a lot of political support from European governments, but are actually creating innovation in China, jobs in China, paying taxes in China. So I do think we're at this moment now where this inquiry into a very complex situation, a very complex economic relationship needs to start happening of questioning who is benefiting, um, what is this actually worth? Um, and how much are we actually challenging um, our own premises here? I think it's not a surprise, or um, it can be a surprise to some that are not observing this closely. But um, we have seen uh, just in a very recent interview last week, Joe Keza, CEO of Siemens, um, being very outspoken about the need for European industrial policy, the need for a better framework, the need for kind of leveling the playing field through creating leverage because he's utterly concerned about the industrial future of Germany and German companies um, under the current conditions. So I think that's something, the localization trends that we're seeing, kind of the, the Chinese industrial policy trends that we're seeing do lead to a situation that will make it harder in the future for European companies. Um, so you mentioned in your recent paper that uh, COVID um, could be a sort of event to be, be the catalyst to changing a paradigm uh, in Europe. Certainly it's changed the outlook on China uh, broadly among the European populace and indeed the world, according to uh, numerous research reports. Do you think that this is an event that can not only change the paradigm for uh, European rebuilding in a green sense, but also uh, doing so between bilateral relations between China and uh, and the EU on this topic? I think COVID in general has just brought China on the map for Europeans more broadly. And I think that's something that um, has often been underestimated. China could have um, really diplomatically benefited um, during the COVID crisis, where the US was largely absent in its diplomatic response or in its response uh, at home to the kind of um, emerging health crisis. Um, but China did not score points in Europe during this phase. Um, through its kind of rhetoric, its assertiveness, its way of trying to shape the narrative around the, the COVID crisis, it really has kind of um, hampered its reputation or, or hurt its own reputation among Europeans. And I think that's an interesting moment where as we go through these two big transitions on the European side, the digital transition and the green transitions, we're obviously looking uh, towards how this will affect our relationships on both sides. And wherever we look, when we go through the digital track or the green track, China's always like right there and right there as a big challenge for us um, on, in, in achieving what we want to do as Europeans. And I do think that's kind of this, this, uh, this, this paradigm shift in the heads of Europeans towards just a tendency towards greater skepticism when it comes to China will have an effect effect also on these policy choices in these areas. Fantastic. So much to think about, Yanka. I really appreciate it. It was an absolute pleasure. And unfortunately, that will bring an end to our special double edition podcast. I hope that we can speak again sometime soon. Thank you, Kevin. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much for making it to the end of our 
special double edition podcast. We hope that it packed uh, twice as much, if possible, edifying information into uh, this special edition episode. Of course, as always, we remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And Twitter, that's at China Observers. And on Facebook, at China Observers in Central and Eastern Europe. We also have a newsletter that goes out every month that you can subscribe to on the Choice website. You can find the Choice website at chinaobservers.eu. Thanks for tuning into this. Thank you again for making the right choice to tune into this episode. We hope you continue to do so alongside the Choice Network. <laughs>